Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to St. Matthew's this morning. I'm going to read a couple of verses from Psalm 105, and then we're going to do what it tells us to do, which is praise the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of his wonderful acts. Please stand and we'll join our music team in singing. seats and I'll lead us in prayer eternal God and father by whose word we are created and by whose love we are redeemed give us power to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ that we may be filled to the measure of all his fullness in his name we pray amen well, a very warm welcome again to you all and congratulations for being here at the right time uh, with daylight savings kicking in this morning. Uh, welcome to you as well on, uh, online. Uh, we're really glad to have you here. For those of you who are guests, a special welcome to you. Uh, my name's Andrew Graham. I'm one of the ministers here and we love having guests amongst us. Really good to have you here. Uh, this morning, uh, Scott will be bringing us the second last of our stories of grace from the Bible, this little series we've had over the last several weeks. Often we think of God's grace in relation to the wonderful thing that takes place when we turn to Christ, in God's goodness, in God's grace. Maybe we think a little less about God's ongoing grace in our lives, uh, but that's certainly something that features in the somewhat obscure story of King Hezekiah whose story is well worth getting to know so that we might understand the way that day by day God shows us his grace. So that's something to look forward to. And a feature of this little series has been not just that we've been hearing stories of grace from the Bible, but also from St Matthew's. And uh, today we hear the story of, the story of Wayne Stickle, who's a member of our night church and uh, whose life really, year by year, just seems to get more and more difficult because of uh, disabilities that he lives with. And yet he shares a story of grace and his knowledge of God's goodness, even through that difficulty. So lots to look forward to this morning, including uh, sharing together in the Lord's Supper towards the end of our service. 
Right now, though, we've got an opportunity to, to share together, to say out loud what it is that we believe about God and his goodness towards us. Uh, so please join me as we affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Rhonda's going to come and now lead us in prayer. Good morning. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord of all things, we praise you for your steadfast love and your guidance. Forgive us for the things that we do that are wrong, both big and small, when we forget you and choose to go our own way. Help us to remember and be strong in the face of temptation. Thank you that we find forgiveness and redemption by the saving work of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can have peace with you. May we be ever thankful for your grace and your kindness. Lord, today we pray for Christians in hardship who are suffering due to floods, famine, violence and persecution. We particularly ask for you to strengthen and protect those who have, been, who have put their faith front and centre in their lives and are living out the gospel in the areas that are hostile to Christian faith. We pray for those in Nigeria, North Korea and China in particular today. As they face restrictions, as they face jail sentences and even death, that they will hold on to the hope that they, they have and that cannot be taken away from them. May your spirit sustain and uplift our brothers and sisters in their daily hardship. May you give them a powerful sense of your presence in their lives and may their faithfulness bring glory to you and to your kingdom. And Father, I pray for us as we don't face persecution that we won't forget you, but that you'll keep, keep reminding us that we are your people and we might live that way. Lord, we give you thanks today for the ministry of Jack and Lil Harradine in Broken Hill and in Wilcannia. We pray that you will bless and protect them as they prepare for a new role of spreading the gospel in rural and remote South Australia. We thank you for the blessing that they've been to the Living Desert Church community and we pray with them that the seeds that have been sown will grow and be fruitful. May your spirit cloak the region of Wilcannia and Broken Hill and many residents there be drawn to faithful Bible-based churches. We ask especially, Lord, that you'll provide a prison chaplain to replace Jack. And Father, we thank you for the joyful time of music that we had last Sunday, both at eight o'clock and at the other congregations. We thank you for the many who came and were able to hear the story of grace. We pray that your spirit would work to soften the hearts of those who don't already know you and that you would be drawing them to yourself by the powerful work of your spirit. Father, we thank you for your loving care. Please guide our thoughts, words and hearts, and hands and feet this week, that we may bring glory and honour to you. And I pray for us as we sit in church this morning that we might be good listeners to your word. Amen. Friends, we're going to sing again, so please stand as we sing our offertory hymn.
So in that moment that I heard that, I, I, I got it. Like I got that I was loved just as I was. You know, so hi, my name is Wayne Stickle and uh, essentially I'm a leadership coach. I, uh, I've been coming to St. Matt's, gosh, I don't know, I have to go and look at my calendar. I think it's like four, four years, four years. Um, yeah, and it's been, you know, I walked in there myself four years ago <laughs> uh, and it's been such an amazing journey. Like I've, I've come such a long way in such a short period of time compared to, you know, the previous 40 or something years. It's, uh, and yeah, I'm part of a growth group. Um, and you know, I've done the Alpha Course and Christianity Explained, you know, so I, I kind of took it on like most things to, um, yeah, to just find out more, to be open to discovering what was there. And uh, that's been like a gold mine. <laughs> uh, well, I have a disability and my experience of pain and suffering has been, um, it's a journey of either acceptance or resistance to that, you know, uh, suffering. And it's because of my personal circumstances that the, the impact or the, the ongoing deterioration of my disability has meant the ongoing deterioration of my experience of life uh, in terms of suffering and pain. When I was 19, I was at university doing uh, behavioural sciences. I wanted to be a psychologist. And I, I, got, I ended up getting this very rare uh, condition uh, called hyperparathyroidism. And they, had to remove two of my parathyroids, I still have two left, but, and it controls calcium in your blood. And so there I was at 19 with a kidney stone and, and surgery on my neck. You know, so I was, and dropped out of uni. And I remember very clearly, I still remember very clearly standing in my pa parents' house in the rumpus room uh, that was there. And being really frustrated with my circumstances as a young man, you know, at 19, thinking, well, what? You know, if there was a God, he clearly was not on my side. He was not on my side. He was, he was punishing me. That was the perspective I took. Uh, and I was very angry about that. And I remember like, looking up at him and shaking my fist. I mean, he did not care about me, and so it was gonna be up to me to live a life that was gonna work for me. And then, you know, by the time I was uh, 42, uh, it, it had worked. Uh, my, my plan to not listen to God had worked. I had achieved everything that you could possibly want. I had a house, a wife, three children, a boat, two cars, a dog. You know, my job, I was a high profile senior manager in a large corporate making excellent money, literally not doing very much work. Uh, you know, I was, <laughs> it was a joke. Um, but the reality was, I had never been more miserable. I was so unhappy. I was an alcoholic, I was overweight. I was doing everything I could to escape from this reality that I created uh, and, I, and I didn't understand at all why. Um, you know, now in, my, in, my, in thinking back, I can see that I chose to take my path and that was the outcome. I tried, I've tried every, everything in, in this world, you know, uh, and that didn't provide the solution. So walking into St. Matt's, that day, that, you know, having the courage or whatever it was that had me, you know, God just dragged me down there, I don't know. Um, you know, that was such a pivotal point because that journey has, and reading the Bible and going to Bible study and talking to people like, you know, Nathan and Bruce has really, and Scott has really enabled me to get a much clearer conception of what the Bible's about. I think most profound for me has been my regular uh, application of the Bible. Um, now I, I'm kind of a bit of a cheat, I'm a bit of a techo, so you know I use Uversion Bible and Amazon Alexa devices to ask Alexa to read the Bible to me, which I find really easy. I get out of bed and say, Alexa, read some Bible passages or, or read my plan. Now I think, uh, you know, the, and it was actually one of those plans that I did, um, and it had this little exercise, hey, you know, I, was like, oh, I was just reading, and it's, oh, a little exercise, you know, you close your eyes and imagine you can see Jesus and then, you know, Imagine him saying he's pleased with what he sees. And I thought, oh yeah, that sounds pretty novel. And so I did that, but I didn't, I had no idea <laughs> what was going to happen next. I was, I was there and I was closed my eyes and when he said to me he was pleased with what I see, I, 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 oh, I just couldn't be with it. Uh, I, <laughs> even now it's still kind of doing my head in. Um, I couldn't be with it. 
I just could not, I burst into tears. I was like, no, no, you can't be. You cannot be, I'm so not that. So in that moment that I heard that, I, I, I got it, like I got that I was loved just as I was. And I think that was very, very profound. You know, ever since then, you know, because so, you know, this is probably a, a couple of years ago now, uh, and, and I've just continued on that journey, and, and my pain has gotten worse. And so there have been times where I've decided over and over, over and over again, I've decided you're not going fast enough, you're not dealing with this effectively enough, I need to take control. And whenever that happens, things always go downhill. You think I'd learn, right? But I guess, you know, human arrogance. <laughs> um, Every time I go back to him, he always, like he, like he promised, he always has exactly the right words to say to me and it's always in the right time. It's literally like he, I, I'm so grateful that there's a God that loves me and sit there watching me 24-7. <laughs> you know, like, he, you know, he promises that if we follow his, follow his word and um, then you know, we can be with anything in life. The most difficult circumstances, I believe we can be with anything because you can have hope uh, regardless of whatever you're dealing with. Um, and, ho and hope is, is in, in, some, in those moments, enough. And, I, and I, that's from personal experience, it's enough. It's enough to get you through. Uh, and uh, and that's, that's something I can't explain. morning. I'm reading from uh, today 2 Chronicles chapter 32 verses 1 to 23 and you'll find it on page 458 in the church bible. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib king of Assyria came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to wage war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. They gathered a large group of people who blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. Why should the king of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. Then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the terraces of the city of David. He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate and encouraged them with these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. Later, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and all his forces were laying siege to Lachish, he sent his officers to Jerusalem with this message for Hezekiah, king of Judah, and for all the people of Judah who were there. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Did not Hezekiah himself remove the God's high places an altar saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before one altar and burn sacrifices on it. <clears throat> Do you not know what I and my predecessors, predecessors have done to all the people of other lands? 
Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my predecessors destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my predecessors. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters ridiculing the Lord, the God of Israel, and saying this against him. Just as the gods of the peoples of other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and to make them afraid in order to capture the city. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of other peoples of the world, the work of human hands. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the commanders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons, his own flesh and blood, cut him down with a sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sechanari, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and the valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. From then on, he was highly regarded by all the nations. Here ends the reading. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks, Peggy. And please keep your Bibles open to 2 Chronicles because, uh, let's face it, you never get the chance to say that. Please keep your Bibles open to 2 Chronicles. I'm sure those pages will be very fresh and white. <laughs> let's pray and we'll get underway, hey? Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, these words to us and our words to us, not as obscure as we first think. So give us good ears to hear and hearts willing to change. Amen. Amen. When my sister was young, uh, I think it was she was in year seven, she was having a difficult time slotting into high school. Nothing too extreme, just uh, the usual kind of stuff. And she was lamenting about this one night with my dad, who lovingly suggested she look up Hezekiah 3.19. So that's what she did, because it sounded like good advice, but she discovered what you will discover if you turn to Hezekiah 3.19 right now. It doesn't exist. There is no such book of the Bible called Hezekiah. It sounds like there should be. Definitely sounds like there could be, but there isn't. My dad knew that. He was never one to let a pastorally helpful response get in the way of having a laugh at someone else's expense. So it does sound like there's a book in the Bible called Hezekiah, because there's a king in the Bible called Hezekiah. And he's less well known, of course, than Solomon and David, the two genuinely great kings in Israel's history. But along with his great-grandson Josiah, Hezekiah was one of the few kings who seemed to do right in the eyes of the Lord, and his story is story of grace. I mean, just listen to how two kings describes him. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. I'll have what he's having, don't you reckon? So who was this king Hezekiah? Why was his story a story of grace? And what can we learn from his story to apply to our story? That's the job before us today. Uh, if you've joined us following Jazz Church or you forgot where we're up to, we're at the back end of a little series called Stories of Grace where we pluck some lesser known folks from our Bibles and trace how God's grace flowed into their lives. And remember, grace is the kindness of God given to undeserving people. So on Father's Day, we looked at Father Abraham. Then we investigated the wonderful Bible women, Rahab from the Old Testament, Mary Magdalene from the New. But today we're back in the Old Testament 
and it's a king with a right-sounding kind of name, Hezekiah. Who was he? How is he a story of grace? And why should we care? Well, to understand Hezekiah, uh, it's necessary to get a feel for the kind of geopolitical state of the world at that time. And as it turns out, it's not all that different from ours. The power of the day was an empire called the Assyrian Empire, and it had swept all the other nations of the world before it. It had a reputation of being particularly cruel. For example, when they captured prisoners, they would put a fish hook through the nose of each of the prisoners, and then they would tie them together so if they wanted to move prisoners about, it was very easy. you just give the line a bit of a tug. No empire lasts forever, of course, but the Egyptians who had previously been the superpower of the day, they were in decline. And the story of that decline is kind of operating in the background of Hezekiah's story. And the Babylonian Empire, which would become even greater than the Assyrian Empire, they were emerging. And they emerge in Hezekiah's story too. But really, it's the Assyrians who are the dominant, brooding threatening tyrants of the day and the king of Assyria is a fellow called Sennacherib which is a great name for a baby I reckon and uh, so in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 verse 1 which you've got open in front of you there when Assyria invades Judah it's much more like a Chinese invasion of Taiwan than a Russian invasion of Ukraine okay it's not an empire in decline with one last grasp at the glory days of old. It is a dominant power against a much smaller, though still defiant, opponent. And it's, it's also important to get a feel for the religious state of the nation of Israel, the Old Testament people of God. And so you see there in chapter 32, verse 1, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, man, that is really like that wonderful first breath of fresh oxygen you could imagine a submariner like a a navy guy in a submarine would suck into his lungs after being at sea under the surface in stuffy air for months right it's like when you first rip off the n95 you've been wearing all day because so often in the history of the kings you read a summary that sounds like this such and such became king he did evil in the sight of the lord but with hezekiah read it with me verse 1 after all he had so faithfully done, fresh. Well, what had he so faithfully done? Uh, it's interesting. Two kings, and also the book of Isaiah, cover the reign of Hezekiah, and they look at it from just a far more historical point of view. And if you've ever wondered why we've got the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Chronicles covering the same territory as the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Kings, you know, the same players, in the same period of time, one or two chronicles give a kind of a theological reflection rather than just a kind of a straight historical, historical record. And sometimes the chronicles look almost wistfully, longingly, with a sad yearning for what kings could have been, wetting our desire for a better coming king who we now know as Jesus. But in Hezekiah's case, man, it is what he was like. The three chapters in Chronicles immediately, immediately before the one we read are devoted to a lengthy description of how Hezekiah purified the temple. He organized the priests to consecrate themselves, to get themselves ready. He reestablished the service of the temple so that once again in Jerusalem, it was used for sacrifice and singing. Like God was back in the house of the Lord because of Hezekiah. But that was not enough. He instituted the celebration of the, or reinstituted the celebration of the Passover, the festival of unleavened, unleavened bread. He invited people the length and breadth of the country to join them in Jerusalem. It wasn't unlike the way Prince Charles travelled to Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland following the Queen's passing, pressing the flesh with people, inviting them to renew their allegiance with the royal family. Except Hezekiah was inviting people to renew their relationship and allegiance and loyalty with God. Like, it is inspiring stuff. So much so that the end of chapter 31, and you can read that in your Bibles there, it ends like this. In everything that Hezekiah undertook in the service of God's temple and obedience to the law and commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. And so he prospered. Man, I would love that to be written on my headstone. Inspiring stuff. But why is his story then a story of grace? 
Well, it is because chapter 32 opens with that devastating news. Let's read it again. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, dot, dot, dot. There'd been religious restoration. There'd been a wholehearted return of the king and people to the commands of God and the worship of the Lord. And yet the disastrous news is that Assyria has invaded the cities of, of Judah and wants to take the capital, Jerusalem. And this is where the grace of God really kicks in. 2 Chronicles paints that upbeat, yearning picture of an ideal king of Israel. Hezekiah busies himself with preparations. He fixes the broken sections of the wall and he reinforces it with an outer wall and watchtowers and he makes weapons and he appoints military commanders and he encourages the people with a rousing speech. Be strong and courageous. You know, it's oratory. It's poetry. Let's read it together in verse 7. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. There's a greater power with us than with him. With him, it's just the arm of flesh. With us, it is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. It is rousing, braveheart sort of material. And Hezekiah even reroutes the water springs so that they flow to people inside the city and were unavailable to the assailants outside the city. What a guy! But it hasn't stopped the superpower of the day, marching men and officers to the foot of Jerusalem with a sneering, threatening challenge. And when you read the parallel account in Two Kings, which is also repeated in the middle of Isaiah, there's no theological reflection on what a great guy Hezekiah is. There's no mention of his prudent preparations. There's no, you can take our leaves, but you cannot take our freedom. Right? It is a much plainer statement of their terrifying predicament. They are full of fear. So a German shepherd and a Doberman and a cat died. It's not a true story, by the way, um, because in the next few lines they'll be talking, and we know animals don't do that. So a German shepherd and Doberman and a cat died. In heaven they faced God, who wanted to know what they believed in. So the German shepherd said, in English, well, that should be in German, Klaus, shouldn't it? I, I believe in discipline, training and loyalty to my master. Well, good, said God. You can sit on my right side. The Doberman said, I believe in love, care and protection of my master. Aha, you may sit on my left side, said God. And then God looked at the cat and said, and what do you believe? And the cat replied dryly, I believe you're sitting in my seat. <laughs> Which is exactly what cats are like, isn't it? And people as well. Isn't that right? See, what do you do? when you face concerning scenarios in life. That's kind of like what Wayne said. Most of us rely on ourselves as if we're sitting in the God seat. We've got our own Messiah complex. Maybe we go to the best worldly option available. Where, where would Hezekiah go in the face of the iron fist of Assyria? It's clear from the account in Two Kings that the Israelites were very tempted to look to the fading superpower of the day, Egypt, to come to their rescue. They were equally tempted to look to the emerging superpower of the day, Babylon, to be their ally. That question the Assyrians ask of Hezekiah in verse 10, in the hearing of all the people in Jerusalem, is the pressing question of the day. Let's have a look at it in verse 10. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, He's misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Or even down in verse 13. Do you not know what I and my predecessors have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver them from my hand? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? <laughs> Man. In the account of uh, 2 Kings, the question's even more acute. On whom are you depending? 
that really is the question, isn't it? Not just for Hezekiah and the Old Testament people of Israel, it's also the question for us today. On whom are we depending? On what are we basing our confidence as we face a life of uncertainty, as we face a culture of hostility, as we face our own failing minds and bodies? On whom do we depend? I reckon that question opens up the possibility of God's grace to swoop in like a feverish magpie in September. Hezekiah trusts in Egypt. Maybe there's no room for God's grace to be at play. Good luck trusting in Egypt. If Hezekiah trusts in Babylon, maybe they'll come to the rescue. But P.S. It won't be that long before they take the people of God into captivity. We trust in our money or in our network of relationships or in our own ingenuity. I reckon, and some of you may have found this, that um, we'll get pretty far in this life. But we won't be able to answer the deepest issues and questions that we face when it really comes to the crunch. So when you come up with a problem in life, and it doesn't need to be a massive life event, it could just be any sort of dilemma, do you find yourself drawing on your own resources first? And maybe then getting the advice of trusted sage friends and only shooting up a prayer to God when you've exhausted all other worldly options. Because that's what I find myself doing. I think that's what Wayne said he finds himself doing from time to time. I think how long will it take me to learn this rather simple lesson? Hezekiah turns to God, verse 20, very succinctly says, the king and the prophet together cry out in prayer to heaven. The account in 2 Kings has got a longer description of what Hezekiah did. He, he went firstly to the temple, dressed in sackcloth to signify his distress and helplessness. I mean, we're talking about the king here doing that. Along with his officials all wearing sackcloth, they went to the prophet Isaiah, which sort of equivalent to us going to the Word of God. Could you imagine Charles III doing that? And Hezekiah prayed a raw, forthright prayer to God, just laying out the true nature of his predicament. No gloss. He acknowledged the offence of the Assyrian threat, and he pleaded for God's name, not his own, not his kingdom, but God's name to be upheld. Take a listen from 2 Kings chapter 19. The Lord, the God of Israel, this is Hezekiah's prayer, Enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are gods over the kingdoms of the earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eye, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands, thrown their gods into the fire. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand. So that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. <laughs> to access the grace and kindness of God, you want to have that sort of humility and concern for God's glory that Hezekiah had. Hezekiah, uh, humility, I should say, is, is like the turnstile through which you access his grace, isn't it? Well, Hezekiah was humble. He'd been humbled by the imperious, severe bullying of Assyria. And he prayed earnestly. And we all await an answer from God. Would God's grace swoop in? Would it trickle in? Or would God remain silent? Well, that's a silly question, isn't it? Because we've already read the passage. And you know the grace of God swooped in Less like a magpie and more like an eagle, but precisely like an avenging angel. As Sennacherib's forces were felled in, in a single swoop, 185,000 of them, according to the Book of Kings, overnight. <laughs> wow. And then when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, returned home and he was worshipping one of his gods, one of the deities by which he believed he'd conquered the nations, in the very temple of that god, Sennacherib's sons killed him by the sword. Right? There's no grace from that god. There's no protection there, not even that god's home ground. God graciously granted Hezekiah the, 
the deliverance that he requested. It was a stunning turnaround. It was a true story of grace. We learn later on in 2 Chronicles 32, as well as in Kings and Isaiah, that when Hezekiah got deathly ill, God promised to extend his life by 15 years and famously gave him a miraculous sign. He, he reversed the path of the shadow of the sun on the temple steps. But Hezekiah's story is not a story of grace because God gave him additional years or a miraculous sign. Hezekiah's story is a story of grace because when he humbled himself under the mighty hand of God and realized that the best worldly options were not the best options after all, God lifted him up. When he pleaded with God boldly, God answered his prayers in bold ways. Why should we care about Hezekiah? I mean, we described him as obscure. I wouldn't say that four chapters in three different books of the Bible is that obscure. I mean, have you got 12 chapters in the Bible written about you? But why would we care? You know, it's because this is exactly what we read about in our New Testaments. In places like 1 Peter 5, for example, all of you, says Peter, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We have consistently defined grace as the kindness or goodness of God given to undeserving people. We might even use grace as an acronym standing for God's riches at Christ's expense, which, as Andrew said, makes it sound like it's all and only about Jesus' death that purchases our salvation, but it's so much more than that. The starters, Hezekiah had never even heard of Jesus living some 700 years before Jesus was born, and God's grace is not only about our salvation we don't rely on God's grace just for forgiveness at that hour we first believe we receive it years after we first believe when Jesus says he's pleased with what he sees when he looks at us isn't that the grace of God that pleasure and that love of us because we know what we're really like and he says he's pleased with us and we rely on God's grace to get us through each day, especially those days where we face those pressing trials and difficulties. Don't we? Don't we do that? Oh, resourceful people of manly? Well, that is what Hezekiah did. The Assyrian commander sneers, on whom are you depending on? What do you base this confidence of yours? And Hezekiah and his people remained silent. But they knew it was not upon the faltering allegiance of Egypt, nor the emerging power of Babylon. Hezekiah knew it was not even on his own ingenuity, though that was significant. It was upon God, and he humbled himself under God's mighty hand, in faith that God would lift him up in due time. He cast his anxieties on God because he knew that God cared for him. And you and I, friends, can do exactly the same. Please note that does not excuse us from taking the action we ought to take. Hezekiah fortified the city walls. He diverted the water source. He steeled his people with a rousing speech. Note even further, there's no promise that God will whisk us away from our difficult situations immediately. That'd be a waste, wouldn't it? We'd, we'd miss that opportunity to grow in character and faith, like the way Wayne has grown in character and faith. You look at those words in 1 Peter, it says God will lift us up in due time, not right away. Just a few verses later in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, it says, The God of all grace, you see there it is again, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, that's the time frame, eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong firm and steadfast so friends i think it's saying let's get on with what we need to do and don't expect instant delivery but when your body is failing you and when your mind is letting you down and when your most precious human relationships are broken 
or they end in death or when your investments fail, maybe more dangerously when they prosper, when you experience disappointment after disappointment, there's an opportunity right there to lean into humility so that God's grace can swoop into your life so that he will lift you up so that he himself himself will restore you and make you strong and steadfast in due time Hezekiah sounds like he should have a book of the Bible named after him there was no one among the kings of Judah like him absolutely stellar chap But really his story is less about Hezekiah and it's more about the God who met him with grace at his most pressing moments when he laid it all out before God. And if God does that for people at their weakest moments, why wouldn't you appeal to him in all your moments? He is a God of grace. And friends, your story can equally be a story of grace. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your grace. That we experience the hour we first believe when we become Christians, but we experience years and decades later, especially when in humility we, we beg you, we look to you, we depend upon you, we place our confidence in you. Forgive us for our arrogance and our sheer folly in looking first to our own ingenuity and then the advice of sage friends. Well, that's okay. But when we do that before we rely on you, how, how foolish we are. How much like that silly cat. Father God, we depend on you. We lay ourselves at your feet. Would you lift us up in due time, in Jesus' name. Friends, we're going to stand now and we're going to sing our third hymn for the day. So I invite you to stand.
we're about to share together in the Lord's Supper. So if you don't have a little communion pack, you might like to raise your arm. And for those of you at home, if you don't have some bread and uh, a little cup, it'd be a good time to do that as well. It's also a good time to get the little plastic seal and the foil seal off. So we're ready to join in together. Our, our pattern is to share in the Lord's Supper every couple of weeks. And uh, week by week, I find such strong connections between the part of the Bible that we're listening to and this very central event in our Christian faith. Uh, as we've been working our way through these stories of grace, uh, we've heard today of a man who should be more famous than he is, Hezekiah, a man with considerable capacity and with a, a, a really steadfast record of turning to God. Uh, how do we know that the faith that he had in God is faith that we can also have, and it's not just him in particular? Well, it's in, it's in the death of Jesus, and it's in his resurrection, uh, which is where we go as we share together in the Lord's Supper. Uh, the bread and the cup that we partake in uh, as we share in this little meal uh, takes us back to the eve of, of the death of Jesus uh, when he gathered his disciples to help them understand what was about to unfold before them. And it's so good that they were there and they could write down what happened so that we could understand what Jesus taught them. And we'll get to that in a moment. But let me um, invite you now to turn to God in confession of sin. It really is... A, a central failing in us as human beings, isn't it? That we draw on our own capacity first. It just seems to be the way our, in, in this fallen world we operate. And we forget that, that it's God who gives us all the strength that we need to face the challenges that he sends our way. So as we prepare to confess our sins, you might like just to take a moment to Admit privately to God the ways in which you've failed him in that way and then we'll join together. Because it is a communal prayer, isn't it? It's, it's we who've fallen short and we who need God's forgiveness. I'll give you a moment to prepare yourself to pray this prayer of confession. Shall we pray together? Merciful Father, we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the schemes and desires of our own hearts. Holy Lord, we have left undone what we ought to have done, and we have done what we ought not to have done. Yet, good Lord, have mercy on us. Restore those who repent according to the promises declared to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant, merciful Father, for his sake, that from now on we may live godly and obedient lives to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Beautiful beginning to Romans 8, which gives us assurance of our forgiveness. When it says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, you've been set free from the law of sin and death. But back to that night before Jesus went to the cross, here's how the scriptures describe what happened. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after the meal, Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's take 
this bread. And as we eat, let's remember the body of Christ which was given for us and be thankful. let's take these little cups and as we drink let's remember the blood of Christ that was shed for our forgiveness and be thankful there's a prayer of thanksgiving and dedication is going to appear on the screen let's pray this together Lord and Heavenly Father in your loving kindness, accept our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Grant that by the merits and death of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in his blood, we and your whole church may receive forgiveness of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. With gratitude for all your mercies, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice through Jesus Christ our Lord, Send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. Amen. You'll be serving morning tea across the courtyard and in the function room. If you're a guest with us, please come and join us. Otherwise, I'd love to meet you at the door before you leave. Uh, but let's uh, stand now. I've got a, a word of encouragement from uh, 1 Peter. We've heard the words a number of times. But these are worth hearing again and having them ring in our ears as we leave. And then I'll, um, I'll say a word of benediction. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. And brothers and sisters, may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep our hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God, and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among us and remain with us always. Amen.